Well, I'd like to say good morning, but it's not morning, so good afternoon or whatever time it is. Uh, please, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Now, before we read our text, our text chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, just to set in our mind real briefly here, Galatians, Paul's writing because false teachers came against the church and brought a works righteousness false gospel. They taught faith in Christ is not enough for justification. You must have works of the law in order to be justified. So he writes this epistle, as you know, through these months that we've been here, to defend the gospel of free grace against the false teachers, to, to show the truth of it. That's verses, um, chapters 1 through 2, he's defending the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, he's explaining the gospel of grace and showing that it's always by faith. Salvation's always been by grace through faith, and he explains that in verses, chapters 3 and 4. And then starting in chapter 5 through 6, he's applying the gospel of grace in our everyday life, how that impacts my daily life. And he's been doing that since chapter 5, verse 1, and he will do that till next week when we finish the book of Galatians. Okay, so as you come then to our section, which begins in chapter 6, verse 7, I should like to read through verse 10 to set this in our minds. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now here the apostles reminding his readers and us of a law or a, a principle that rings true for the universe. You will reap what you sow. You will receive back what you give. Science, for instance, has over the many years observed numerous certainties from research. And because something is always happening in the same way in an activity or in nature, we call that a law, right? For instance, a law of nature, something always happens when you put whatever the two or three entities together and you work it out, it always ends up the same, and we call that a law by observation. We call that a principle, a law of nature. There's these laws that we observe govern creation, like the law of gravity. I guarantee you, you jump off here every time, you're going you're gonna to splatter on the ground every time. Okay? So that's a law. It's a, it's a principle. There's the second law of thermodynamics, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Uh, there is a law within nature that like begets like. You have, uh, you have, this is a common teaching in scripture that like begets like in the natural world and it's applied to the human world, to our human conduct. For instance, Matthew 7, listen to how Jesus teaches here in 16 through 20. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Well, Jesus is not so concerned about agriculture as he is about human conduct. But he uses a principle. He uses a law of nature and applies it to human conduct. It's always this way. Like begets like, okay? Now, he goes on in James 3, just to set this in our minds, right? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Can salt water produce fresh water? No, no, no. So it is with 
human, right? So it is with human conduct. Like begets like. You reap what you sow is the principle. Paul uses the same principle in 2 Corinthians to encourage the Corinthians to give lavishly to the gospel. And he says it like this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So those are laws, those are principles that govern creation, that God has put and made an integral part of how creation functions. But I want to add this to this. More than that, and much more than that, it is a law, it is a principle, because the creator, the living God, he is active in creation. It's not separate from God. There's not some foreign law that governs the universe separated from God. It is a law because God is faithful. Okay? The creator is active in creation. He's actively ruling in and over all creation. It is a law, it is a principle that we observe because the creator is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And he is omnipresent. He is everywhere present in all of the universe and all of his being. Okay? Not only that, he's able to do all that he has planned or purposed or willed to do. It is a law, a principle of nature of creation because God is faithful to act according to his will every time. Okay? It's not something foreign to God. We observe God's faithfulness and we call it a law. Okay? Now think of this, Colossians 1.17 speaks of Jesus Christ. He is before all things and in him, Christ, all things hold together. He is the cohesive agent of all of creation. Okay? Hebrews 1.3, similar, says this about Christ. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, of God's, and this now, upholds all things by the word of his power. We observe a law, a principle, because of that truth. Jesus Christ says, stay. Jesus Christ says, jump off, you're going to splat, because he says so. If Jesus Christ said no and upheld you, we would call that a miracle, right? But he's not bound by a law. It's a law because of his faithfulness, okay, to do what he's determined, okay? This is what we're observing in science. There, there are certainties in creation because Jesus Christ speaks so. He says so. He upholds it by the word of his power. For instance, Psalm 135, 6 and 7 says this. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth he makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Get this now. God says there will be seasons. There will be spring. There will be summer. There will be fall. There will be winter. And guess what? There will be spring again and summer again because of God's faithfulness. He sends the rains. He causes the seeds to grow. Even droughts and famines are his activities. Okay? He withholds. Reaping and sowing is because of God's faithfulness. Okay? So in our text in Galatians, the reaping and sowing that Paul is presenting here is beyond creation even. It is a moral law in our text. Get this now. God is actively ruling over his moral creatures according to his righteous character, according to his standard of right and wrong. He is the sovereign ruler who rules all creation and especially over his moral creatures, you and I, and he does so according to his righteous character. Okay. Psalm 89, 14, I love this. Uh, we read it a, a while ago in a Thursday prayer, but he says in verse 14 of Psalm 89, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
right? What is the meaning of that? The foundation, his judgments settle and stand on his righteousness and his justice and his faithfulness to that standard, to himself, okay? So God rules presently over all his moral creatures as the righteous judge, and this is connected, follow my thinking here, and maybe I'm screwy in my thinking, but at least follow where I'm thinking from, right? That this righteousness of God and the reaping and sowing is connected to temporal judgments. In other words, remember Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why is that so? Right? That's reaping and sowing. Right? It's God's wrath is against all ungodliness because of the principle of reaping and sowing. See, because he rules the universe according to his righteous character. Okay? Now, there are much troubles in this world. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's disasters. There's corruption. There's death. Because of mankind's sin, but also, and more importantly, because of God's faithfulness to his righteousness. Okay? And we love it so, don't we? We're always crying out for justice. There's no one more just than God. And he rules his universe according to that. And so reaping and sowing that we're looking at in Galatians, that we will, is because of God's faithfulness to his righteousness he will judge righteously today, and he will judge righteously in the future. Listen to this. Psalm 96, 13. Before the Lord, for he is coming, for the for the he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world. Now listen, in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There you go. Righteousness and faithfulness. He will judge in the future. He will come and uphold perfect justice. Reaping and sowing indeed. Okay. Revelation 19.11 looks to the future. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Okay. Again, God is governing his moral creatures according to his righteous standard according to his righteousness and because of his faithfulness to his righteousness, to himself, there's reaping and sowing. He must do so because he's righteous. Listen to Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's reaping and sowing, and that's according to his standard. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Reaping and sowing because of the righteousness of God. It's a standard, it's a law, it's a principle because of God's faithfulness to his standard. Okay. This moral law, this, this moral principle that, that is in creation because of God's activity, it's not, again, some impersonal law that functions separate from God. He didn't just wind it up and let it go, but he's living, he's active, he's personally involved. He's personally involved and some of you probably, I hopefully were thinking, at least by now, what about forgiveness, preacher? <laughs> right? We're gospel people. What about forgiveness? Um, what about mercy? What about grace? I forget about it. It's over. Just kidding. Um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The gospel is about grace and mercy. But get this. Because of the death of Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago, and because of his resurrection, God can be both righteous and merciful. He can forgive you, and he can withhold temporal judgment on a pagan world because of the cross of Christ, okay? He can withhold the temporal judgments as he wishes, and he carries out as he determines. But it's all rooted. It's a principle. It's a law of creation because of God's person, 
Okay? Now, listen to Luke 13. This is a long introduction, but we won't go beyond because the text is so clear. I can't add much more to Galatians 6, 7, and 10, right? So I had to do something. (laughs) 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 Got to earn my pay, man. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Luke 13, listen to this. Just listen to this. Jesus speaking, or he's interacting here. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, Pilate, the pagan who, who judged Jesus, okay, he apparently, according to this text, had come and persecuted Jews who were worshiping and mixed pig's blood with their blood, and it was, it was horrible, right? It was uh, persecution. Um, Jesus said to them, to his audience, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Isn't it interesting that he has to say that because our mind, like Job's friends, are going to say, you must be a horrible sinner because of what happened to you. You see, sowing and reaping is a principle that we live by. We just see it. Uh, The pagans call it karma. The pagans call it karma, tit for tat. You do good, you're going to do good, get good. If you do evil, you're going to get evil. So if you're suffering, it's because you must be a dirty, rotten sinner. Well, that might be true, but not exclusively, okay? So Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than you because you were spared that fate? He says this, um, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, we will, you will all likewise perish. Do you see what he's basing this on? People were of the principle and understood the, the principle, the law of reaping and sowing. This horrible act happened. It must be because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But do you see the flip side to that? Because it didn't happen to me, I must be some righteous dude. I must be right before God. I must be pretty holy, right? Because I'm fat and sleek, you know, I have no problems, right? Well, this guy over here, he's suffering and starving and having all kinds of problems and diseases. He must be a dirty, rotten sinner. You see, reaping and sowing is the principle. And it's a law because of the righteousness of God, right? It is a law. But within, because of the cross of Christ and the resurrection, God can spare temporal judgments from those who deserve judgment you see so we have to be careful when we're talking about reaping and sowing that it is not an immediate transaction and it's not a perfectly parallel transaction because of the cross of christ and because of the mercy of god okay in the temporal realm okay good and confused are we (laughs) i hope not reaping and sowing in common grace listen to luke 6 35 and 36 A lot of these are our verses from our class. So if you're not coming to Saturday morning, you need to, guys, right? You need to come to our class. Just kidding. Um, But love your enemies, Jesus says, and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. That's a reaping and sowing aspect because God's determining that. Okay, now listen to the rest of that. And you will be sons of the Most High. You will be like your papa. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. What's the implication? They don't deserve his kindness. They deserve his temporal judgments because of reaping and sowing, because of his righteousness, because of his character. He must punish sin. But it says here he's kind to ungrateful and evil men. And then he says in 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. How in the world can he be merciful when he's righteous? Because of the cross of Christ. You see, the cross of Christ for the whole world has purchased a reprieve of temporal judgment. Not final judgment, okay, but temporal judgments. For instance, pagans can enjoy the sunshine and the rain and eat good salmon, you know, and eat good beef and, and live in Folsom where all of the happy people live, whatever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
and never give a thought to God. It's God's mercy. But what about reaping and sowing? Don't you worry. That principle still rings true because there's a final judgment coming where they are accruing, right? They're, they're adding. Romans 2 says they're adding to their judgment as they live in rebellion, even though God is not bringing about temporal judgment in this life. So people can misread a life relatively free of trouble and say, I must be pretty good, right? That's why it's hard to evangelize rich peoples, right? They have everything they ever think they wanted. And you come with the gospel of grace, and they're like, I don't need that, you see? And God's already showing favor to me. Why would I need that, right? You can misread that. But this principle of reaping and sowing is based on the righteousness of God and his faithfulness to his standard. So that brings us all, to, all the way to Galatians 6. And we come now to verses 7 through 10. How, how, before we go through this, listen, why does Paul, the question that comes to my mind, why does Paul bring this teaching in this place? Why does he go there in reaping and sowing? And I think why he does so, and see if it rings true as we go through here, it is to stir them up to continue to live for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's to keep them from legalism, which comes against the gospel of grace. I think the principle here that he's going to bring forward is to keep them stirred up to serve Christ in the power of the Spirit and not be caught up in legalism and the deeds of the flesh because you reap what you sow. You, you will sow what you reap. So look at this. He does this in four ways. I just do this real quick. Each verse deserves a P. Principle is established in verse 7. Product, the, the product is in verse 8. The promise for perseverance is in verse 9. And then the practice to be cultivated is in verse 10. Just look at how he goes here. Verse 7. He's establishing the principle in verse 7. And he starts with, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he must also reap. Interesting that he starts in this fashion. Some of his readers, as we know from going through Galatians beforehand, were falling prey to the legalists. They were falling prey to the works righteousness. They were, they were sliding back from grace and being caught up in the Jewish legalism and the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws. And they were, they were thinking of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. And this is what he writes there in verse 7. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Now, interesting, he starts with deception there. The way the grammar is put together, it's stopping something that's happening to you. In other words, don't allow, stop allowing yourself, he says to them in verse 7, stop allowing yourself being led astray. Resist being led astray. Stop allowing them to deceive you. Now think about this, led astray from what? Deceived from what? Obviously, in the Galatian context, it's being led astray from the truth of the gospel of grace. Don't let them draw you away wandering around in legalism. Don't let them do that to you. Don't let them deceive you. How, deception is evil. Legalism is deception in this context. Legalism is not some higher form of Christianity. Legalism is not some form of stricter Christianity. Legalism is a false teaching. Legalism does not lead to Christ's likeness. Legalism actually goes the other way. It keeps you in bondage. It keeps you in, in an infant stage instead of growing maturity. So he says, stop being deceived. Obviously, they were being told otherwise. And if you've ever been around legalists, you've heard the mantra. If you really want to be right with God, you just quit doing this and you start doing this. And you start keeping this law and start doing this. You wear this and you don't wear that. You drink this and don't drink that. You can put whatever you want to it. But the idea was it makes me more favorable to God. This is deception. Stop it. Live by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the contra is faith in Christ. The gospel of grace is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Follow Jesus, not Moses. 
Moses is a good guy, but he's not that good, right? Don't follow Moses, follow Jesus. And if Moses was here, he would do the same thing. He says, I wrote about him, look to him, go to Jesus, not me, you see. The Judaizers gave too much credit to Moses <laughs> and said, look to Moses and follow Moses. No, stop being deceived. And then he goes on to say this, look at verse 7. The deception, stop being deceived, and then he, to add weight to this, he says, God is not mocked. That's interesting in the context. Why would this be mockery to God? Because the gospel you're rejecting is the gospel of God. To, mock God, to go into legalism to think that is going to assist you in Christ's likeness is to mock God. Because God said the contrary. No, no, no. The law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law is a tutor that leads to Christ. And once you come to faith, you leave the law behind you and you live by faith. You see, to not do that and to teach otherwise not only deceives people, but it's mockery to God. That's serious because God will not be mocked. He will not allow you to mock him. Right. Um, this is really fascinating. The word literally means. It's fascinating how words have meaning and then you can see why they use it as they do. To have a nosebleed, right? Well, what do you do when you have a bloody nose? You tilt your head up, right? And so the idea of why it's used, translated mockery, it's to have a snooty attitude, stick your nose in the air in disdain against God, right? And so to, to reject the gospel of grace and to follow legalism is to have disdain for God. It's to stick your nose up to him and say, I don't, I don't buy that. Right? It's really fascinating. And so it's a common term for scorn. It's to scorn God. But God will not allow that. Right? God will not be mocked. And look at what he says in the context, verse 7. The principle is this. Why will God not be mocked? This is, this is the truism. This is the truth that's going to establish why God can't be mocked. Whatever a man sows, this is what he will reap. He will also reap. God will not be mocked. You can't, think of this. You can't live as though God is irrelevant. He won't allow it. He's active. He's personal and living. He's not an idol. He's not a stone. He's not inanimate. He's real. He, you cannot live as though he's not relevant and get away with it, I guess is a way to put that, right? He will hold us accountable will not every mouth be shut will not every eye basically stand before the creator and every knee bow and every tongue confess that jesus is lord everybody will be held accountable god will not be mocked he will not be he will not be treated as though he is irrelevant ultimately because it says there in verse 7 whatever a man sows he will also reap wow Notice what it says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Kind, producing kind. If you, if you plant wheat seeds, what do you expect to grow? Wheat, right? Not biscuits or corn, right? If you plant corn, you expect corn to grow. God will not be mocked. Do you see, he's, 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 Paul's using this to stir their souls, to stay on the grace beam, the, the beam of faith in Christ, because a life lived for Christ is what he's after here. And look at what he says here. He goes into verse 8, and verse 8 then explains further what he means about sowing and reaping in kind, because now he gets to the product in verse 8. What is your product? What, what crop are you producing? Is really a good question for us. Verse 8 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Wow. The flesh, of course, is the unredeemed aspect of us, the still sinful part of us, if you will, of a, of a true believer, right? We still have this unredeemed flesh that we're housed in. It is that which we inherited from Adam. It is, it is that which we yet possess that according to chapter 5, verse 17, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Okay? It's an active opposition. It's in continual battle against the spirit, the flesh. If we sow to the flesh, verse 8, we will reap from the flesh corruption. What does it mean to sow to the flesh? 
Well, I think it's this. It's, it's to live according to the desires of the flesh. Simple enough. It is to submit to them, to the flesh. It is to carry them out. It is to obey the flesh. It is, it is to be a slave of the flesh. It is to do what the flesh wants to do. Well, what, what is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at 519. Look at 519. The deeds of the flesh are evident, not confusing. <laughs> Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. To sow to the flesh is to live those out, to do those things, and and more. That's not an exhaustive list. So when it goes to verse 8 and says, the one who sows to his flesh, from his flesh, notice what it produces, is corruption in verse 8. Reaps corruption. The, think of this now. The product of the flesh, of that seed, right, is corruption. The whole, the whole product of the flesh can be summed up in one word, in verse 8, and it's corruption. Corruption primarily means destruction or ruin. It, it, it has the sense of deterioration or decay. The product of the flesh is decay. Wow, that's how bad the seed is, all right? It's, it speaks of rotten fruit. It speaks of rancid meat. If you live by the flesh, you will only produce corruption. Because that, remember, the principle of sowing and reaping, whatever a man sows, that he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, the flesh is it cannot produce righteousness. The flesh cannot produce Christ-likeness. The flesh can only produce corruption, decay, deterioration. It's all it can do. It's all it can do. That's why legalism is worthless, because it cannot curb the desires of the flesh. You see? It's fascinating stuff. It only produces moral corruption. As we said, the flesh cannot produce righteousness. It cannot produce godliness because it's not in the seed. It's like begets like. Romans 8.12 says it like this, Paul writes, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, the flesh can only produce corruption. If that's what you're sowing to, if, you're, if our life is yielded to the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, it only can produce corruption. In this temporal life, it would be restrained by grace, but in the, in the end judgment, it produces nothing good and only, only corruption. Okay? In fact, look at 521 real quick again. It says in the second half of 521, it says... And things like these of which I forewarn you, that just as I have forewarned you, and then this, that those who practice such things, that's sowing to it, if you will, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Clear enough, okay? Clear enough. But back to 6.8, look at what it says. The second half, contrary to sowing to the flesh, is the one who sows to the Spirit and will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So sowing to the Spirit, that is to live by the Spirit, that is to obey the Spirit. For instance, I remind you of 5.16, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's yielded to the Spirit, it's walking in the Spirit, it's... it's, it's it's subject to his leading. What is his leading? Verse 22 of chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and so forth. 
okay? As opposed to the deeds of the flesh. What are you sowing to? Sowing to the flesh produces corruption, moral corruption. Sowing to the spirit, yielded to the spirit, a life in the spirit. Notice what the spirit produces in contrast in 6, 8 is will from the spirit reap eternal life. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, right there makes me desire one over the other. <laughs> right? Now, eternal life, real quick, is not just about length of days, length of life, because everybody's going to live forever somewhere of two places, okay? But eternal life has more the idea of quality, kind of life. In other words, it is God's kind of life. Jesus is called eternal life in 1 John. John 14 says of Jesus, he is the life. Christ is the resurrection and the life. Okay, so eternal life is a kind of life. The Holy Spirit's kind of life. God's kind of life. It is a life that Romans 6 talks about being alive to God and dead to sin. It's a kind of life. Since you came to Christ, the moment you were converted, you possess eternal life. But we're waiting for its full flower when the final judgment come and you experience all that God has intended in having eternal life. Resurrected body, the new body, and your new soul housed in the new body, living forever in the presence of God. That's eternal life that the Spirit gives. This life in verse 8 of sowing to the Spirit is what does it look like? We've, we've mentioned chapter 5, verse 22 and 3 already, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it looks like. How do you know you're walking in the Spirit, not the flesh? Look at chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Is your life characterized by that? If, to help that even, right, those characteristics in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 are personified in perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. They describe Him. You see, because Jesus Christ, when He walked on this planet... He is godliness. What does godliness, godliness look like? Look to Jesus Christ. What does eternal life look like? Look to Jesus Christ. What does righteousness look like? Look to Jesus Christ. He's the pattern, you see. And he lives in us, does he not? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ, what? Lives, present tense, in little old me. Praise God. The Spirit lives in me. God lives in me. God lives in you. You see, to reap, to sow to the Spirit is to allow the indwelling Spirit to have His way in your life. And the product of that life, according to verse 8, what you will reap from that sowing is eternal life. God's kind of life. And that's obviously beyond this life, this temporal life. It includes this life, but it's fulfilled, culminated in the next life, in the final judgment when you will possess all that God has intended for those who believe. That's good stuff. That is good stuff, right? Well, let's move to verse 9, please. And he goes from the, the, the principle in verse 7, and he goes in verse 8 from the product in verse 9. He gets to the promise to those who persevere. Here's more light really explaining what he means by sowing to the Spirit as well as a motivation to carry on. Look at what it says in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Doing good. That which is morally right, that which is beneficial, that which does no harm, that which does no physical or moral harm or spiritual harm. It does only that which is beneficial. Doing good in the context is what it means to sow to the Spirit. Because the Spirit's never going to lead you astray from doing good because who determines what is good is God. Okay, So doing good is what he, in context, means by sowing to the Spirit. Now, in 5.13, look at 5.13 of Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't serve the flesh, but through love serve one another. Doing good in love are parallel. Doing, doing love, through love serve one another. The life sowing to the Spirit looks like verse 13. In love 
serving one another. And as we've seen before, the word serve is where we have slave, right? So we serve one another as a slave is what that text is saying. But it's, it's encompassed and, and upheld by love, okay? Look at 6, 1, and 2. Last week, Pastor Max uh, ex, 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 did exposition of this text. But look at 6, 1, and 2. What does good look like? Look at 1 and 2. Brethren, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. That's doing good. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Verse 2. What does doing good look like? Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What does good look like? Look at verse 6. This is one of my favorite ones here. <laughs> Just kidding, people. Look at verse 6. The one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, right? <laughs> but that's doing good. Life in the spirit takes care of the preachers. If you have happy preachers, you have happy people, right? It's like if, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Same principle in the church, right? You take care of your preachers, he takes care of you. I'm not talking Learjets and Cadillacs. I'm talking just beans and rice, you know? Just beans and rice, that's all. And, and a roof that doesn't leak. But hey, um, do you see doing good then in verse 9 is what it means to sow to the Spirit. It's, it's living a life of doing good. We, we are do-gooders. Isn't that how we're supposed to be? We, I think a lot of us recoil from that. I'm not a do-gooder, man. I'm a self-made man. No, we're do-gooders, right? We're, we're, we spend our life serving other people, doing good, following the steps of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is sowing to the Spirit, and the church needs to be like this. Right? The world's already not like this. We don't need more churches like the world. We need churches like Jesus Christ. And that is to walk in the power of the Spirit, serving one another, putting others first, man. Always putting others first. It takes the Spirit to do so. We, we, we are in verse 9. And isn't it fascinating? <laughs> verse 9. Let us, let us not lose heart in doing good. What a fascinating deal. Let us not lose heart. This word has, means literally, let us not keep on giving in to evil while we do good. That's literally what it says. Isn't that fascinating? Why, what would be the temptation? Why does he have to bring that in there? Let us not lose heart. Literally means let us not give in to evil while we're doing good. It tells you there's opposition. It tells you, not only does your flesh, chapter 5, verse 17, not want you to live according to the Spirit. It want, the flesh wants to put you first and everybody else second. Okay? Not only that, but there's evil in the world. There's opposition against you doing good. There's, there's people who hate Christ and hate Christians. And for you to do good, even the ones you're doing good to might not like you doing good to them. And this says, don't fall prey to evil. Don't succumb to evil while you're doing good. And he goes on to say, look at what he says in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. What's the motivation to, keep this, to stay on the path of grace and doing good? The second half of verse 9. For in due time we will reap promise if we do not grow weary. So the promise to the ones who persevere is to resist the evil that wants to keep you from doing good. Instead, remember that you will reap. God has made a promise to the one who's sowing, the one who's sowing to the Spirit, the one who's doing good is going to reap a harvest. And if like begets like, what, would, what should that farmer expect to reap? But good, righteousness, and God's favor, and grace, and blessings, and, and it's amazing. It's, what, it's his promise. And isn't it interesting, legalism does not, legalism is what he's opposing here when he teaches this. Legalism does not do this. Legalism is not about serving you. It's about serving me. It looks like I'm serving you. That's its deceptive way. But it's all about me. 
And that's not what this text is saying. It says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, in the right season, as God determines, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Fascinating. The word weary, it, uh, it means to be cut loose. It means to be untied. It means to uh, lose your grip. Isn't it interesting? To lose your grip from exhaustion in doing good. He says, if we don't do that, if we persevere, we will reap a harvest of good. That's fascinating, right? And the, the, the promise in verse 8 of reaping eternal life is somehow parallel to what's expected to be reaped in verse 9. Okay? All right. Now, think of this, please. Why do we need this constant reminder of don't fall prey to evil, stay the course, persevere, don't grow weary in doing good, right? Why does that have to be stated? It's because we're always, it takes energy. It takes toil, doesn't it? I mean, it, in my mind, parallel to this is a good mama with her babies. You talk about people who, who are just in a self-sacrifice mode, taking care of a little sinner, <laughs> right? But they give their life, right? They give their life to that little bugger. And that's, that's, that to me is a perfect picture of what we're being called to, right? That if, if you can remember your mama and how your mama took care of you, I, I mean, I'm, my mama's my hero, and I want to be like her because she's like Jesus, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that self-sacrificing. And it takes energy, doesn't it? It takes, I mean, ask Miss Catherine what she's learning about that newborn in her life, right? Or Vitalik. I mean, I saw him the other day. He looked exhausted, <laughs> right? And I savvy, right? And the, guy, the little guy forgot how to sleep or he never learned yet. But it takes energy. It takes toil. And that's why Paul says, let us not lose heart. Don't let evil win. Don't let evil wear you down so that you fall prey to its complacency. You see, if evil's winning out, you're not going to persevere in doing good. You're going to shrink back. You're going to pull back. You're not going to be zealous on fire for good deeds. You're going to say, nah, let's... Let Rebecca do it, right? <laughs> right? Let, let, let Noah do it, right? Let, let, um, you know what I'm saying? Don't grow weary in doing good. Titus 2.14 says it like this. We are to do good. We're good do-gooders. Do Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, and then this, zealous for good deeds. That's why Christ redeemed us. That's why Christ died for us. He wanted to, a people of his own possession to be like him, and what was the characteristic shown there? Zealous for good deeds. We should be racing. If we hear someone has a need out in the parking lot, this room should empty out quick, right? I want to be the first one there to serve him. Be zealous. That's the idea. It's, it's like a little kid chasing the ice cream truck, you know. We should, we should see people in need like that. Be the first one there. Zealous for good deeds, to do good. That's why God saved you. Listen, often, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we have 8 and 9 pretty well cemented in our minds, but we forget verse 10. Listen to verse 8 and 9 and then verse 10. 2, 8 and 9 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, praise the Lord, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, listen now. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
You see, the church is made up of a bunch of do-gooders <laughs> because that's why Christ redeemed us. That's why Christ saved us. And so here in this, this application part of Galatians, applying the gospel of grace, he, he's, ex, he's exhorting, he's stirring up the Galatians to stay away from legalism by the principle of reaping, sowing and reaping. What you plant is what you're going to harvest. Plant to the Spirit, sow to the Spirit. The Spirit will produce eternal life. In this life, verse 9, let us not grow weary in doing good. That's sowing to the Spirit. Have this idea that there you will reap in the future. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired. Push on. Push on. Because there is a harvest to be had. There is a harvest to be had. We will reap. Promise. It'll be good and it'll be bountiful. But it's only for those who persevere. And this is not a new thought or a foreign idea in the New Testament, is it? It's a per perseverance is a common exhortation. The encouragement is this, beloved, that if you're in Christ, he perseveres with you and he will cause you to persevere. You see, you rest in him, you rely on him, but we do persevere, okay? Because think of this, in Matthew 10, 22, different context, but same idea, listen to Jesus speaking, he says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Perseverance is the ones who will be saved. Hebrews 12, 3, for consider him, Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So picture Christ and how he withstood that the hostility, so that, purpose, you will not grow weary and lose heart in your battle against the flesh, your battle against evil, in doing good. Look to Christ. See his example. Remember the future promise. You will reap a harvest. If you sow to the Spirit, it'll be a good harvest, right? Remember those promises. Remember that you're indwelt by God. You're indwelt by Christ. You're indwelt by the Spirit. Call on the Spirit of God to, to, to not grow weary, to stay the course. And then finally, look at verse 10. Verse 10. So then while we have opportunity, this is the whole purpose of what Paul's getting to. Here's the practice he wants us to cultivate. So then while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Wow. Notice the priority is the church. Not to the, the all-exclusion of people outside the church, but the priority in verse 10 of our energies is the people of God. It is the church. Because isn't that what Jesus says? They will know you're my disciples by your love for the world. No, love for one another. You see, we should love one another in Christ-like fashion. See why that is. And the world is watching and seeing. And those who desire to experience the love that you and I have for one another should be very attractive to them. Because people deep down, don't you know this, in their soul need affection, need, need love, and they need divine love. They, they hate God until God comes and changes them. But in their heart, as they look at a church, as they look at people who, who have nothing in common other than Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit, and there's a self-sacrifice, Christ-like love for one another, the world sees that, you see, and it's attractive. I want that. I mean, how many testimonies have you heard where people say, man, I saw these people and they just loved one another and I just wanted to know what that was. They wanted to come and, you know, and they sniff around and see what that's like. We should not be, by our actions toward one another, we should not repel people. Our gospel will repel people, but not our actions, not our practice. If we're sowing to the Spirit and we're, we're, we're doing good and we're persevering, not falling prey to evil and staying the course, and we're prioritizing the people of God, as verse 10 says, especially to those who are of the household of the faith, 
You see, those are our brothers and sisters. We don't exclude the world. We just don't prioritize the world. Does that make sense? But notice what it says, though, as it refers to the world in verse 10. While we have opportunity, we're looking for opportunities. We should be, like I said, if we hear somebody out there that has a need, we should race out there to be the ones to fulfill it, right? So we're looking for opportunities. We're not closed-minded. We're, we're, we we want to be hypersensitive to those around us for opportunities because reaping and sowing, you see, Will God reward your faithful act of goodness no matter to who it is? He will reward that. That's what he says. Do we believe that? Do I believe that? Is God real? Is he living? Is he active? Is he here? Is he watching? Is he keeping track? Apparently so. There's lots of New Testament verses that say so. Well, do I believe that? Let us do good. Let us not fall prey to evil. Let's resist evil in the power of the Spirit. Well, how about this? According to Hebrews 10, somewhere, where is that, 24? Um, I wrote it down somewhere. Oh, yeah. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's Hebrews 10, 24. Right? Um, the word stimulate is a good cowboy word because it, it's, it means to spur, <laughs> right? It's to spur one another on. And when we come together in different ways and different fashions and Sundays and midweek and whenever we come together and for coffee, whatever, part of our togetherness ought to be, according to this text, let us consider, that's to think carefully how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's how important it is to God. Um, and that's sowing to the Spirit. That is sowing to the Spirit. So then remember this as we close this up. God is active and ruling in creation and over his moral creatures. Because of his faithfulness to his righteousness, there is such a principle, such a law as sowing and reaping. He's ruling this universe under that principle. But because of the cross of Christ and the resurrection, he has purchased a restraint according to his will of keeping back temporal judgments from those who sow to the flesh, who sow to sin. But there is a final judgment. If we reap to the flesh, if we live according to the flesh, give no evidence of the Spirit, we will not inherit the kingdom of God, but we will be held accountable for every thought, word, or deed and judged accordingly. But in Christ Jesus, we have a new nature and dwelt by the Spirit, and we can sow to the Spirit. We can walk by the Spirit. We can live by the Spirit. So you call on the Spirit and obey Him, and evidence that you are is verse 22 and 23 of chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And... Up, and an aspect of that, according to our text in Galatians 6, is to persevere in doing good and especially prioritize the people of God. But as you have opportunity, do good to all people. Right? And God will reward you. He loves to reward his people. In fact, he's more willing to reward than we are to be rewarded. Right? He is lavish in his giving. He's lavish in his grace and mercy. He's lavish in his giftings. We're the ones who are stingy. I close with this. One Bible teacher who was an older gentleman in my first Bible class in Montana, um, that's been 1993, I think it was. He said, have you ever noticed how the Jews pray? Right? Of course, I didn't because I didn't. I barely knew any Christians. <laughs> I was just saved. And he says, they pray like this. And he made the point of, isn't that interesting? Because we pray like this, right? And his application was, 
is because they expect God to lavishly gift them <laughs> instead of stingy like this. How are you going to catch what God gives you if you're all puckered up like this? So I took that, and I never forgot that, and it's in my mind, and I say, Lord, I want to pray like this. I want to sow to the Spirit, and I want, I want to serve lavishly because I want to receive lavishly. And that's not self-centered. That's what God says. Amen? Amen. So let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. Can I pray and then we'll do one last song? Yeah. Father, thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us. Help us to be do-gooders in the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord. And if anyone here does not know you in a saving way, I ask and plead with you to do a work in their heart and bring them to yourself that they might know the forgiveness of their sin and the hope of heaven. We give you all the praise, for you are worthy. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, thank you.